I had a friend in college named Chris, and he wasn't like most of us who came straight to college from high school. Chris was a little bit older because he had spent a number of years after high school building and driving race cars semi-professionally. So it wasn't really a surprise that Chris joined the autocross club. It was a group of students who go out to Riverside campus every month to compete around a a tight track. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with autocross, the type of student who usually joins the club is fairly wealthy and drives a sports car. Uh, You usually see a lot of Camaros and Corvettes and BMWs out there, and most of them have put a lot of money and effort to heavily modify their cars, to boost the horsepower, to widen their wheels, to lighten the chassis. But Chris wasn't intimidated by all that. He showed up month after month, and in the course of the year, he beat all of them. Chris won every class, every division of autocross that year, and here's the great part. He did it in this, an early 1980s VW pickup truck. Actually looked a lot worse than this one, got a lot of laughs at first, has a tiny little engine, narrow tires, few modifications, And yet in this boxy little truck, he beat everyone regardless of what they drove. And here's how he did it. Chris beat everything, even 400 horsepower Corvettes in this tiny little truck. Because unlike everyone else, Chris didn't let what's good distract him from what's essential. Getting more horsepower, installing stickier tires, stiffening your suspension. All of those are good things to do. They make your car a little bit faster around the track. All of those are good. And yet none of them are essential to winning. What is essential? You have to know how to drive. Chris spent all his time and effort on this one essential thing, becoming a great driver by honing his skills lap after lap on that track. He didn't let the pursuit of what's merely good, like tricking out his ride, get in the way of what is best, learning how to drive really fast. Yet so often in life, just like the other guys on that track with Chris, we let our pursuit of what's good distract us from what's best. That may be most true for many of us in the realm of prayer. We have let prayer for things that are good distract us from praying for those things that are best. So let me ask you, when your prayers turn to petition... When you have spent time prayerfully thanking God and confessing your sins and you get to the point of actually asking him for things, which God wants us to do, what do you ask him for? When you pray for your needs and the needs of others, what do you pray for? What is it that you ask God to do in in your own life and in the lives of others? Well, for many of us, our petitions focus on things that are truly good College students who pray for God's help on a test or even a date on Friday night with another believer. That's good. Those are good things to pray for. Parents who pray for the safety of your children. All of us over 30 pray for the health of our fragile bodies. All of us with jobs pray for the protection of our jobs in the midst of uncertain times. All of these are good things to pray for, for ourselves and for one another. We should be praying for these things on a regular basis. And yet I fear that in view of these good things, these urgent and concrete needs, we too often forget to pray for those things that are truly best, those things that are essential, that are most important, that trump good health and safety and stable employment and even a good date on Friday night. And I am as guilty here as anyone. Without conscious effort, my prayer life becomes wholly focused on earthly things, earthly needs of myself and those I care about. That's why all of us need to learn how to pray well. How to pray not just for those things that are good, but for those things that are truly essential. That's what Paul will teach us this morning in the short passage that we're studying in the book of Philippians. So if you'll turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. 
While you're turning there to Philippians, I I want to remind you of what we've studied so far in this book. The big idea of Philippians is our heavenly citizenship, how to live as good citizens of heaven while we're on earth. And in our first passage, verses 1 and 2, Paul taught us that as citizens of heaven, we have received a new identity. We are saints in Christ, we are slaves of Christ, and we are servant leaders for Christ. And last week in in the first half of Paul's prayer for the Philippians, in verses 3 through 8, as he thanked God for these dear believers, he taught us that citizens of heaven have also received a new occupation. Regardless of our job on earth, all of us are here to advance the gospel locally and globally. And now this week, as we get to the second half of Paul's prayer for the Philippians, and he turns to petition to ask God to do things for the believers in Philippi, Paul teaches us how to pray well as citizens of heaven. He teaches us in verses 9 through 11 how to petition God, not just for those things that are good, but for those things that are truly best. So look with me, starting in verse 9. Let's read this prayer. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Well, you, you may notice this is a very short prayer. This is actually only one sentence, both in English and in Greek. Letters in the ancient world were slow to write, and, and they cost a lot of money. And so Paul has only a brief amount of space to record his prayer. That forces him to focus on just the essential things, to include only those things that are truly most important for the Philippians. So notice what's not in this prayer. There is no prayer for their health. There is no prayer for their physical safety, for their material prosperity. There is not even prayer for the various ministries of their church. All of those are are truly good things to pray for. I'm sure Paul prayed for those on a regular basis. But when his space was limited, he cut back to the bare essentials. He prayed only for their two most critical needs. There's only two big needs here in this passage. And it doesn't take much study of Scripture to see that these same two essential needs are timeless. They are always the most important needs of any believer in any church. So these are our essential needs also. As we study this passage, this is teaching us what are those best things that we need to always be praying for, for ourselves and for one another. Well, the first essential need is right there at the beginning of verse 9. Paul says, this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more. Now, you may notice here, he is not rebuking them for being unloving people. No, he admits, you're already loving people, but I want you to abound more and more. I want you to continue to grow in love. I want God to continue to expand your capacity for love. And notice that Paul doesn't specify any object of this love. Is it love for God? Is it love for one another? Is it love for those outside the church? Paul doesn't answer that because he wants to leave it as broad as possible to include all of those. He simply wants God to grow them as people of love, loving towards everyone. Now, if we're really going to understand this first essential need, we've got to pause and spend some time to define the word love. There is probably no word found in your Bible that is more in need of clarification than this word. That is because such a wide gap has opened up in modern times between the biblical concept of love and how our society uses the word. So let's compare those a little bit. 
Okay, what does our society mean when it uses the word love? Well, the meaning of a word is determined by how it's used. So let me give you what I think are the two most common uses in our culture of the word love. Number one, love can describe my desire for some object. That's what I mean when I say I love the tacos at Mikosina. It means I, I, I wake up with a desire for the tacos at Mikosina. They are the best tacos in the town. I, I love those tacos. I want to eat them. Okay, so first use, to, decide, to describe something I desire. Second use, to describe an intense feeling of joy or happiness I have in the presence of another. That's kind of, kind of the most common use of the word love. To say that John loves Amy means that John feels an intense uh, sense of happiness and joy in her presence. That's why he always wants to be around her. And really, the, the common idea of the world's definition of love is that love is based on a feeling or an experience that I have. Love is based in me. It's based in how you make me feel. I love you because you make me feel good. Love is me claiming those things that make me happy or satisfied or joyful. That's what the world means by love. But that is not biblical love. Uh, the Bible actually uses multiple words for love. Uh, the, the word it's here, that's really the primary word is agape. Just like we did with the society's definition of love. Let's find the definition of, of agape by seeing how it is used. Let's look at a few instances of this word in scripture. Number one, uh, we've got to turn to 1 Corinthians 13. This is the definitive chapter on agape love in scripture. Look with me at Paul, what Paul says in verses 4 through 7 about agape. Agape is patient, it is kind, it is not jealous, love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So as Paul describes love, what I think is helpful here is that he tells us, hey, your love is not based in, in the value of the person you love, in their attributes, in their qualities. Okay, it's real interesting. Notice a contrast here. Whereas the world says that John loves Amy because Amy is patient and she is kind and she is forgiving to John. What does the Bible say? The Bible says John loves Amy because John chooses to be patient and kind and forgiving to Amy. Biblical love is, is not centered in, in the attributes of the one love. It's centered in the choice of the one who loves. It's the first use we want to see. Here's the second passage I want us to look at. Matthew 5, 43 to 45. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Agape is not just directed at those who are worthy of it. It is not just directed at our friends and our family and at God. It's, it's actually, it extends to those who are unworthy of love. Even to those who ridicule us, who persecute us, who hurt us. Agape love goes to all, whether they are worthy of it or not. Final use I want us to see. Jesus' words in John 15. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is telling us that the pinnacle of agape love is death. The willingness to die for the good of the one I love. Notice how opposite that is from the world's definition of love. True agape love means I'm actually willing to sacrifice my happiness and even life itself for the one I love. It's not directed at getting happiness for me. It's directed at you. From these usages, I think we can arrive at really a biblical definition of the concept of love. Here it is as 
my best attempt to summarize it. Here's what I think agape love is. It is a choice to so highly value another that you sacrifice self for their good. Agape love is a choice to so value another that you give yourself to them. Love is all about a choice to give. You give to them of your rights and your desires, your your pleasures, your comforts, your money, your possessions, your time. You give to the one you love. That's what love is all about. I want you to notice a couple key differences between this definition of love and how our world uses the term. Number one, love is not based on a feeling. This definition of agape love, it's not based on a feeling. Now, usually, feelings will accompany the choice to love. We saw that with Paul. Paul chose to sacrificially love the Philippians. And what followed that? Well, verse 8, a sincere affection for them. He deeply longed for them. He had strong emotions towards them. Usually, emotions will follow the choice to love, but not always. Some days, you're just going to feel flat. You're not going to feel affection towards anyone or anything. And some days, rather than feeling affection, you're going to feel annoyed because people are ticking you off. The lack of good feelings does not negate love because biblical love is not founded in your feelings. It's not based in how I feel about you. It's a choice I make. That's the first difference. Second difference, it's not based on their worth. Sometimes agape love is directed towards someone who is worthy of it. That's the example of, of, of our love for God. We love God because God is completely worthy of that love. We're simply agreeing that he is absolutely infinitely worthy and we're laying our lives at his feet. So sometimes love is directed to those who deserve it, but often agape love is directed towards those who don't. That's the case of God's love for us. We don't merit agape love from God. We're rebels. And yet God freely chooses to love us, to give himself to us. That's what his love for us is all about. So biblical love, it's not based on feelings. It's not based on the worth of the one love. It is a choice to so highly value another that you sacrifice self for their good. Now let's get practical for a minute. What would it actually look like if God answered this prayer for us? What would it look like if God caused our church to abound in love? for him and for one another and for the lost. What would that actually look like? What would our neighbors and our coworkers see if they looked at us and we truly abounded in biblical love for God and one another and the lost? What would they see? I think above all else, what they would see is a group of people with a profound willingness to give. Love is all about giving. The the measure of our love is the amount that we give. I'm not talking about giving money. That might be part of it. But giving ourselves to another. That's what love is. It is a willingness to give for the good of the other. That's what the love of God means. The love that binds eternally the members of the Trinity together. It's giving. It's self-givingness. That the Father loves the Son and the Spirit means that the Father gives himself to the Son and the Spirit. The Son gives himself to the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit gives himself to the Father and the Son. All three members of the Trinity for all of of history have given one another honor and glory and praise. That's what the love of God means. God extends that same love to us. He gives himself to us. He gave us life and relationship and then when we fell in sin, he gave us the greatest gift of all. He gave us his Son. To love is to give. 
To love another is to give up my rights and my desires, to give up my time and my money, to give up my possessions and my comforts and my pleasures for their good. It's to give. That's practically speaking what love is. It is to give beyond reasonable limits to the one we love. So if if Grace Bible Church is to satisfy this great need, this first essential need, then God will grow us to be a group of people that when the outside world looks in, they will see people who give beyond reasonable limits. We give of, of ourselves to God, to one another, to the lost. That's our first great essential need, to grow in, in love that leads us to sacrifice ourselves for the ones we love. Now that kind of love is not easy. Self-sacrifice costs us. It does not come easy. That's why this is a prayer. Paul doesn't tell them, hey, you guys, grow in love. No, they, they can't make themselves grow in love. This is a supernatural thing. Love elsewhere in the New Testament is called by Paul a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. It's, it's something that the Spirit produces in us. It's supernatural. Here in verse 11 of our passage, I think it's one of the fruits of righteousness. These righteous characteristics within us. And how do those come about? Well, look at verse 11. Through Jesus Christ. Jesus grows us in this love. We can't make it happen. This is a supernatural thing. So I think there's a couple things that that, that leads us to do. A couple applications for us. It's this love... If this love is supernatural, then number one, we need to be praying for it. When you pray for your kids, for your family, for your friends, for the church, number one, pray for them to grow in love because only God can bring that about. It's supernatural. He's got to be the one who builds it. In addition to praying, the second thing that we need to do is we need to let go of obstacles. We need to let go of obstacles that hold love back. See, God is omnipotent. He can do everything that he desires to do. And yet God does not force a growth of love upon us. God does not force us to grow in love. He allows us to limit our growth if we hold on to things that are toxic to love. Like an unwillingness to forgive, like jealousy, like envy, like pride, like bitterness. These things, they limit the growth of love in us. God doesn't override those. If we hold on to those obstacles, they limit our growth. It's just like if you go buy a goldfish and you put that goldfish in a little tank, what will it do? It doesn't matter how much you feed that goldfish, it will never grow. It will stay small because you put it in a little tank. That The little world it lives in confines it, it limits its growth. Even though God designed a goldfish to grow, it won't grow beyond the limits of the tank you put it in. But take it out and put it in a pond and it'll take off. It'll grow exponentially because God designed it to do that. That's what we need to do. We need to remove things that limit our growth in love. We need to put away past disappointments and past hurts. We need to be willing to forgive. This is kind of a practice that we often call taking thoughts captive. You don't need to be the kind of person who is always in your mind rehearsing things that people did to you in the past. Ways that they hurt you, ways that they disappointed you. You need to let those things go. Forgiveness means letting it go. Taking control of your mind when those memories of hurts and disappointments come up and saying, hey, I'm shifting gears. I'm not going to think about that. I'm not going to dwell on those hurts and disappointments. That's how you remove those obstacles so that you can grow in love. Now, some of you out there, you may have been hurt so deeply in the course of your life. You may have been betrayed. You may have been abused. Hurt so deeply that that you really, you can't yet forgive and forget. That doesn't even make sense to you. How in the world could I forgive and forget? If that's you, I want to encourage you to come talk to a pastor or a counselor. Sometimes hurts go so deep that we need professional help to be able to let go of that pain. 
please, for all of us, do whatever it takes to let go of those obstacles that hold us back and then pray every day for yourselves and for your family and for our church to grow in this supernatural love, to be willing to so highly value others that we give of ourselves to them. That's our our first great essential need in life. First thing that should be the core of our prayer lives is our need to grow in love. Second need that Paul gets to in the same verse is our need to grow in knowledge and discernment. Again, just like we did with love, we need to quickly define the terms. What is Paul talking about here? Uh, knowledge is a term in Greek, epinosis. Uh, it's, it's interesting. It's actually a combination of two words. Gnosis is the common term in Greek for knowledge. It can mean knowing basically anything, knowledge of any subject. But when you add that little prefix at the beginning, epi, it always is talking about knowledge of ultimate reality, knowledge of, of God and of God's word and of God's ways. Epinosis goes beyond just knowing facts. It includes understanding. You don't just know that something is true, but you understand what it means and how it applies. Whenever epinosis is, is referred to a person like to God, it means not just factual knowledge, but a relationship. To, to know God, as this term denotes, isn't just to read about him in a theology book, but to experience relationship with him. Now, again, you'll notice Paul doesn't provide an object. What is this knowledge of? Well, I think it's, he leaves it broad, so it includes everything possible. It's knowledge of God. It's knowledge of God's will. It's knowledge of God's word. It's knowledge of each other so that we can bless one another. It's knowledge of everything important. That's what Paul wants us to grow in. But notice Paul includes a second term, discernment. Uh, discernment is a capacity or an ability to make wise choices. It's an ability to act upon knowledge to choose what is best. We often call it in English, wisdom. Paul's desire for the Philippians is that they would grow in a, a knowledge of who God is and of God's word so that they would then make right choices based upon that knowledge. Okay, so that's, that's the idea here. These terms are actually perfect complements of one another. They describe someone who's smart and also wise. That's what Paul wants us to grow in. That's our second great essential need. But how does that growth happen? How do we grow in knowledge and all discernment? Well, again, just like love, it's a supernatural thing. That's why it's in a prayer. Paul doesn't tell them, hey, go grow in knowledge and discernment. No, he prays for God to do it. True knowledge of God, that's a supernatural thing. The Holy Spirit has to reveal that to us. So if we're gonna grow in knowledge and discernment, number one, we need to be praying for it regularly. Just like with love, this needs to be a normal prayer. When you have your prayer time in the morning or at night, you need to be regularly praying, God, please grow me to know you more. Grow me to know what is true. Grow me to be wise, to act wisely upon that. Pray for yourself and pray for those you care about. Pray for the whole church, that God would grow us to be a church of knowledge and wisdom. Uh, Second, in addition to praying, second thing we need to do is immerse ourselves in the one source of true knowledge and wisdom, and that's God's word. This book is the one definitive source of ultimate knowledge and of wisdom in all areas of life. And so if we want to grow, in addition to praying, we need to be here. We need to be in it, making ourselves available to God's spirit to teach us and train us. I'm talking reading. I'm talking scripture memory. I'm talking inductive Bible study. Spending time in God's word, letting it wash over you so that you understand it. That's how you grow in knowledge and discernment. And so our, our two great needs in life, God desires us to grow in love and to grow in knowledge and discernment. But before we move on or move off of those two essential needs, I do want you to notice something really interesting about verse 9. 
Notice, um, unlike how I just did it, Paul does not present these as two separate needs, does he? He doesn't say, hey, I'm praying that God will grow you in love and hey, while he's at it, that he will also grow you in knowledge and wisdom. No, Paul says, my prayer for you is to have your love grow in knowledge. Let love and knowledge grow together. He intimately connects these two essential needs. If you're gonna grow in love, you also need to grow in knowledge. You can't have one without the other. I think in Paul's mind, these two essential needs are two sides of the same coin. If you want one, you gotta have the other. And here's why. Here's why Paul connects these two needs so intimately. Number one, because they feed each other. God designed you so that as you grow in love, you will also want to grow in knowledge. And vice versa, as you grow in knowledge, you will grow in love. A couple examples of that. Uh, when I say that our love fuels our desire to know, it's easy to see that when I was dating Julie. As Julie and I were dating, we're getting to know one another better, I was falling in love with her. And, and what I noticed about that is the more that I came to love Julie, to be committed to her, the more I desperately wanted to know her. I wanted to know what she was thinking. I wanted to know her background. I wanted to know what she cared about, what she dreamed about in the future. The more I fell in love with her, the more I wanted to know her. I'm sure most of you have experienced that. Our growth in love fuels a desire for knowledge. On the same token, a growth of knowledge fuels our love. My best example of that is to look back to my years at seminary. My favorite class was a class called Trinitarianism. We were studying the nature and attributes of God. It was taught by Dr. Harrell favorite class in seminary, but it wasn't because of Dr. Harrell's teaching style. He would come in every morning with a huge stack of notes, lay them on the lectern, and just begin to read. And, 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 and these were the same notes I had myself, so I'd read them the night before, so they weren't new to me. He, he just read. Okay, and, you know, occasionally he'd expound upon something, but he just read, and the notes, you know, frankly, they're pretty dry. Lots of big words. It's not like reading Harry Potter. It's pretty tough stuff. I loved the class, not because of the teaching style, but because of the content. Because every class period I walked into there, Dr. Harrell in his brilliance would open the word of God and teach me something new about my God I had never thought of before. I swear to you, every single class period ended in worship for me. Those classes were actually some of the best worship I've ever had, even better than worshiping with you guys because I came and my mind was blown away with new truth about God and that new knowledge fueled my love for God and it led me to worship. As we learn about God, it fuels our love for him. These two things fuel each other. Love and knowledge, they feed each other. That's the first reason Paul hooks them together. They're meant to grow one another, to grow together. Second reason he hooks them together, because one without the other is dangerous. One without the other is a very bad thing. My youth pastor put it well to me. He said, love is like a mighty river. And knowledge and wisdom, these are like channels that guide that river. When you have both, when you have a river guided by channels, you have a force for great good, generates power, irrigates crops, gives water to cities. But take away either one and it gets really bad real quick. What if you take away love? What if you take away that river? What do you get? Well, knowledge without love is really nothing more than a dry ditch. There's nothing in there. It's, it's not good for anything. Paul makes that point. 1 Corinthians 13 again in verse two, he says, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, then I am nothing. You can know everything about God. You can understand God and his will. You can know how it applies to your life and if you don't have love, you are nothing more than a dry ditch. You do no one any good. 
That was the challenge of seminary. If any of you ever want to go to seminary, know that that will be your greatest challenge. Day after day, you will take all of these classes where you are just learning so much from God's word. You're spending all this time learning about God's attributes, about what he's doing, about how to study his word. You're growing in knowledge, and yet if you do not spend time devotionally with God, growing in love as well, then all of that knowledge will go bad on you. It will sour into pride and arrogance. Man, that's what you struggle with in seminary. Because knowledge without love is just a dry ditch. Pride and arrogance is all it is. But on the other hand, if you have love and yet don't have knowledge and wisdom, then what do you have? Well, you have a a river without banks. You have a dangerous flood. Love without wisdom is not a force for good. It's a force for great harm. One of the ways that I, I, I illustrate this, my parents' uh, church was going through a hard situation not long ago. They had a, a member of the church who was very involved in a small group who decided to live in sin. This person decided they were going to move in with someone who was not their spouse. They knew that it was a sin, but they weren't willing to turn from that, to relent from that. And so the elders of the church came together, and after a lot of prayer, in wisdom, they chose to exercise church discipline. To tell this person, hey, we love you, but you cannot keep coming to this small group. You are not welcome anymore until you choose to repent, to turn away from this sin. Now, a lot of people in that small group really struggled with that decision. How can this be love? How can it be love to kick this person out? That's not love. Shouldn't we show them grace? God is so gracious. And yet when you look at scripture, you learn that love without discipline is actually foolishness. It actually does harm. When you love without discipline, what do you say to that person? Hey, your sin, it's no big deal. We don't really care. We're gonna welcome you in. We're gonna treat you like nothing ever happened because who cares? And not only does it harm that person, it harms everybody else in your church. What do your kids see? Your kids see that, hey, sin, it's no big deal. We talk about it a lot, but when push comes to shove, there's no consequences. No, sin is destructive. Sin has incredibly painful consequences. Because of that, if you are going to love wisely, you are willing to do the hard thing. You are willing to say the hard thing. You are willing to, to rebuke and to correct and to discipline. Love that is wise is love that acts for the good of the one who's loved, whether they want it or not. That chooses what's best for them. That's love with wisdom. Love without wisdom, man, it's foolishness. It's destructive. It's destructive not only to that person, but to everybody else as well. God is calling our church to grow in both love and knowledge. That's our great need. Two sides of the same coin. That's what Grace Bible Church needs above health and safety, above material prosperity, above building improvements, above quality ministries. We as a people need to grow in love for God, for one another, and for our community that is willing to sacrifice self. And we need to grow in our knowledge of God and his will and of our ability to apply it wisely. Those are our two great needs in life, growth in love and growth in knowledge and discernment. And you may notice my time's pretty much up and I've only covered one verse so far. <laughs> well, that's okay. Verse nine is really the, the key verse. It, it is the only one that presents our essential needs. There's just two needs in this passage. I do wanna cover really briefly what 10 and 11 are all about. As is usually the case, Paul doesn't just tell us our essential needs. He describes them in some detail. He gives us a little bit more information. I want to give you guys that really quickly. Actually, what Paul does in verses 10 and 11 is he simply gives us three results that come if verse 9 is true. If verse 9 happens, if God grows us to be a people who abound in love and have knowledge and all discernment, what will be the outcome? Well, three things will happen. Number one that Paul tells us, 
beginning of verse 10, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. The first result of of growing in love and knowledge is that you approve, that means to agree with, so as to practice, or you could translate it to choose. The result of growing in love and knowledge is that you will choose those things that are excellent, or you could translate that, are best, are are most essential. Paul is saying is that as you grow in love and knowledge, then, then this newfound knowledge guides you to choose what is best for those whom you love. I'll give you a few examples. Uh, the parent who is growing in love and knowledge, this parent is willing to sacrifice a promotion, which is something good, for more time with their kids, which is something best. Uh, this is a person who, rather than working through lunch, which is good, you're putting in more work, is willing to give that up and instead eat lunch with a coworker who doesn't know Jesus, which is best. This is the person who uh, doesn't buy a new piece of furniture for their home, which would have been good, and instead gives the money to a neighbor who's in danger of losing her house, which is best. Okay, so what Paul is saying here is that as you grow in love and knowledge, you use that new knowledge to choose what is the very best for those whom you love. That's the idea here. You're always choosing what is truly best, not just what's good, but what is best. That's the first result. Second result is in the next part of verse 10. He says, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, or, or better, in preparation for the day of Christ. The day of Christ is the day that we stand before Jesus Christ for judgment, for evaluation. Paul is saying is, is that if you want to, to be found by Jesus pure and blameless when you stand before him, then you need to be growing in love and knowledge. Love and knowledge is the way that you arrive at a good judgment. The word pure here means unalloyed. It was used of silver that wasn't mixed with cheap metals. It was pure silver. Jesus will find us pure. No, no sin, no bad motives in our lives if we're growing in love and knowledge. Second, blameless. We, we haven't caused others offense. We have not hurt others. Instead, acting in love and knowledge, we bless them. So Paul's saying if, if you want to be found well on your day of judgment before Jesus, you need to grow in love and and knowledge. Now, let me remind you from, from earlier uh, this, this last year when we were studying this subject, this is not a judgment about getting into heaven. Okay, Paul's, Paul's not talking about getting into heaven. Your, your, your destiny in heaven is guaranteed the moment you trust in Jesus as your Savior. And you say to God, God, I believe that you sent your son Jesus to die for my sins and that he rose from the dead. At that moment, heaven is guaranteed for you. You can never lose it. And yet, for all of us who are going to heaven, the first thing we'll do in heaven is stand before our Lord. We'll stand face to face with Jesus and he will evaluate our lives. And as he looks at our lives, he will see, hey, did you live a life of love and knowledge? Was that what characterized your life? If so, then he will give us reward and honor. If not, then we will experience loss and shame when we see Jesus. So that's Paul's point. If you want to be found pure and blameless when you stand before Jesus, grow in love and knowledge. Third result that he has for us is verse 11. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, most of this verse, I think, is really a restatement of the idea in verse 9. Paul wants us to grow or be filled with these fruits of righteousness, of which love is one, and that comes by Jesus Christ. He's the one that builds these fruits in us, but the result of being filled with these fruits of righteousness like love is found at the end of the verse to the glory and praise of God. 
The, the end result of growing to be a person who abounds in love and knowledge and discernment is that you glorify God on earth. You point people to the greatness of God. Jesus said much the same thing in John 13. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Our love for one another, our wise love directed towards one another is the primary thing that points people to God, that glorifies and praises him here on earth. So the third result of verse nine is true. We will glorify God. We will point the world to Jesus Christ. So growing in love and knowledge, it is no small thing. It's actually huge. It is how you glorify God on earth. This is God's desire for our church, again, above everything else. There's lots of things to pray for for our church. Please do pray for all those things like health and say all those things. But above all else, pray for us to grow as a people who abound in self-giving love towards God and one another and the lost and pray that we would grow to know God deeply and to practice his will wisely. That's my application for you. This sermon is very simple. It comes to a very simple application. Every day this week, I ask you to pray that God would grow yourself, your family, and our church in love and knowledge. Please pray for that every day. Build that habit up. If, if you look at your prayer life at some point in the future and you think about it, you say, God, what am I praying for here? Look to see. Have, have you, kind of, have you kind, of, kind of diverged back into just praying for those things that are good? What you need to pray for, but is that all you're praying for? If so, then recommit yourself. It's time to pray for what is best, for what is most essential. That God would grow us to be a community who gives love to, to everyone and who grows in our knowledge and discernment of God. I want to pray for that right now. Let, let's turn to the Lord and pray. Uh, for those of you who are here from Community Church, we are so glad that you've joined us. Uh, I ask you to pray for this for your own church. Again, I think this is timeless. Every church, these are the two essential needs, grow in love, grow in knowledge. So let's lift this up to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we turn to you today. We thank you for this prayer, Lord. We thank you that we can learn from it. Father, we confess that we get so distracted by things that are good so distracted by things that are good but, but are not truly essential. And so, Lord, this morning we rededicate ourselves. We, we pray that you would help us to grow as people who abound in love. Father, change our hearts, grow our hearts so that we love you, so that we love one another, so that we love the community even when it costs us, so that we're willing to lay down our rights and desires and sacrifice our time and our effort and our energy and our money and our comforts and our pleasures for the good of others. Please, Lord, make us a people who profoundly give Second, Lord, we pray that you would grow us to truly know you, to understand who you are, to understand your word, and then apply it wisely to the choices of life. Lord, make us a people of knowledge and wisdom so that we can truly honor you. Father, we pray that you would grow us in these two things. We pray that when Bryan College Station looks at these two churches, at Grace Bible Church and at Community Church, Lord, that they would see groups of people who love radically, who, who, who know you um, deeply, Lord and who really glorify and honor you. Father, we pray that you would get all the glory from this, that both of our churches would exalt you so that men and women from, from all around this town and all around the world turn to you in praise. That is the hope of our hearts, Lord. We pray this all in the name of your Son, who made this all possible for us. Amen.